From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 19, for Saturday, November 23rd, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifrith with what is the 19th edition of Share Profits Radio. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast today. I am indeed uh, in Wales, the mighty principality, rain sodden nation, uh, by just 30 yards. But for the next two weeks, uh, these uh, podcasts will be coming to you from Greece, where I shall be off doing some honest work for once in my life. That is to say, the olive harvest. Anyhow, more of that then. There are people out there, including my colleague on Share Profits, Malcolm Stacey, uh, my friend Andrew Monk at VSA Resources, who are convinced that house building shares are very cheap. I have long disagreed with this view. I regard them as fundamentally expensive, although they look very cheap. It's often the way with investments, uh, something that looks cheap, that looks almost too good to be true. Well, it is too good to be true. If you want a classic example of that, I would suggest you look at Into, the owner of uh, uh, um, large shopping centres. Its shares, last time I looked, traded at something like 35p. Its last stated net asset value is well over £2 a share. Surely, this has to be the cheapest stock on the market. You can buy the stock and you're, you're getting a huge discount to net assets. All the company needs to do is sell a few of its units and do a share buyback and everyone will be rich. Well, that has been the argument all the way down. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that net asset value is completely illusory for reasons which you're fully aware of. Uh, shopping centres uh, buying shopping centres today, it's not quite like buying a typewriter manufacturing company in 1977, but it's pretty close to it. I'm not saying that shopping centres will disappear overnight, but the economics of owning them are changing dramatically. Uh, they're changing for short-term reasons, that is to say, uh, over-indebted uh, 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 and undersaved consumers sense that maybe the world economy is slowing, things aren't going to be quite so good next year, and they're spending a little bit less. But critically, what they are spending is increasingly online. And as every cold winter goes on, uh, people my father's age go to a much better place and are replaced by uh, young snowflakes uh, who can't read or don't read books, have never watched a black and white film in their life, and who shop increasingly online. Uh, that means that there are fewer people walking through shopping centres, which means there are fewer people there to make discretionary purchases, perch off-the-cuff purchases, just wandering past windows. Everybody suffers. And, of course, as certain stores go bust, we've seen plenty this year, then uh, there appears a hole in the shopping centre. There's a, you know another charity shop or just a vacant, shuttered outlet or yet another bloody coffee bar. It becomes less of a destination place and then there's fewer people. It's a vicious circle. 
Uh, of course, the costs of running the shopping centre, maintaining it, painting it, uh, having people there to go and sort of stop vagrants pissing in the alley, uh, uh, security cleaning, etc. Those costs don't fall in line with rents. They're pretty static. In fact, they go up. Uh, and all of that uh, means that the free cash flow generated by any shopping centre is going through the floor. Rents are tanking. Uh, shopping centres are being presented by uh, customers, by big retailers, with a choice. Accept a big reduction in our rates or we're going to go bust in our rents or we're going to go bust. Your call. And since shopping centres know that it would be almost impossible to relet the space, they're given a choice of a void or a dramatic reduction in rents. They have to take the dramatic reduction rents. The whole economics of the industry is changing. And that is why into shares may appear cheap, but they've appeared cheap for an awfully long time. The reality is it is a company drowning in debt and whose net asset value is illusory. That is based on historic rents. If you recalculate the net asset value, making uh, some somewhat bearish assumptions, extrapolating trends over uh, uh, the trends of the past couple of years for two or three years going out, suddenly you get a very, very different figure. And of course, with the company having vast amounts of debt, uh, you can pretty uh, uh, quickly come to a crunch point where the net asset value just disappears altogether. The debt is not going to go down in value, the value of the assets will. Why did I talk about Into? Not particularly as I'm talking about Into, because I'm talking about house builders is what you see in the stock market too good to be true? My friend, the Bear Raider, Evil Knievel, uh, Simon Corkwell, uh, uh, recounts that his first experience of the stock market was in 1973. Makes you realise, actually, Corky's not that much older than me. He's in his late 60s now. I'm in my early 50s, so at the time I was only five. I didn't know much about the stock. I know anything about the stock market. I'm not sure I even knew if the stock market existed. I didn't grow up in that sort of family. But Corky, as a young man, uh, was attracted to the stock market, and he bought shares in Bovis. Now, Bovis has been a house builder which has been around forever, but it's had a bit of a checkered, <coughs> excuse me, a checkered history. It's gone bust a few times. It's had numerous owners. At one stage, it was owned by P&O, I think. And so it's gone through various forms of ownership. Now it's a highly successful house builder. Back then, it was also a highly successful, or so evil thought, uh, house builder. Uh, it was an independent company, and Evil looked at it, and he looked at the historic earnings, he looked at the share price, and said, well, my boy, that's on a P of three. That is surely too low. It must be uh, the cheapest stock in the universe. Evil bought the shares, uh, and within a few months, the company had gone bust. Uh, you see, the problem with house builders is that their earnings uh, can fluctuate inc incredibly. There are two things which impact on house builders. The first is, well, profits building houses and selling houses. Uh, and those can swing wildly too. They can swing for two reasons. One uh, is house prices. If house prices come down, uh, then your margins are going to be compressed. But the more critical one is housing volumes. If housing volumes start to fall, 
then you're really in trouble because you're not generating the cash you need to pay the you know, your builders, your Polish builders. You're not you're not generating enough to pay their wages, to pay the interest on any debt you may have. You're just not generating enough cash to go out and buy new land. And therefore, you are forced to drop prices. But volumes here, when you get into a bear market for housing, just fall off a cliff. So suddenly, your revenues disappear overnight. Your costs, well, you can start sacking the Poles and, and, and giving them a ticket back to Poland. You can do that, but it's very difficult. You see, leaving half-built sites, can you really do that? You can cut costs, but you can't scrap them altogether. It is perfectly possible, uh, and housing has historically been a cyclical business, uh, whereby you see both volumes and prices uh, absolutely collapse. Uh, and that has a devastating impact on profitability. I think we've seen signs of that. We've had a couple of house builders who've issued minor warnings talking about how prices are soft, especially in the southeast, and also about how volumes are slowing down. Uh, they kind of uh, occasionally allude to this just being a Brexit phenomenon. People are deferring purchases until after Brexit. I'm not so sure because you see it's happening not just in the United Kingdom. Uh, you are seeing the same patterns happening in the bigger cities of the United States. In smaller US cities, you have a very different it's a local housing market. It's very different. But in the bigger cities of the United States, you're seeing the same thing happening. In Australia, you're seeing house prices falling very severely. Ditto in India, ditto in China, and ditto elsewhere in Western Europe. So it's a global phenomenon of house prices coming down. So I don't believe that it is just Brexit. The reality is we've seen house prices inflated over the past few years by the fact that interest rates have been more or less nothing. And we've had quantitative easing. There has been a massive asset bubble. It's not just affected houses, of course. It's affected bonds. It's affected shares. Look at the U.S. stock market. Uh, it's affected uh, valuable art. It's affected the price of rare whiskies or rare wines. Uh, it's affected, much to my joy, the price of wisdoms, cricket books. It's affected the value of football clubs everywhere. There's been an asset bubble, and residential real estate is part of that asset bubble. Uh, there are some assets, of course, uh, which haven't benefited from the bubble, shopping centres being uh, a case in point. And, of course, uh, uh, you know, that is obviously an asset where the income stream is totally screwed. Everybody can see that. But had there not been an asset bubble, I think the falls in the value of shopping centres would have been even greater had interest rates not been so low. So we have a global asset bubble. And the thing about bubbles is they can carry on for far longer than folks think. <laughs> But eventually, they have to burst. Valuations of any asset, you think of shares in the stock market. If you have shares in a company, you can see uh, them go to crazy levels, crazy, crazy levels. Uh, uh, well, I'll come on to a couple of AIM ones, which are at crazy levels later. But they can go to absolutely insane levels. But they can only stay there for a while because eventually there's no one out there mad enough to buy them. If you think back to a, a, any, any sort of bubble. And eventually that happens and then there's only sellers and they collapse. If an asset is not supported by fundamentals, the bubble has to burst in the end.
I said there were two ways in which uh, the profits of house builders could go down very suddenly. I covered the operational one. The other one, which can see companies move from profit into loss, just like that, is the carrying value of the land on their balance sheet. Uh, Over the past few years, uh, with house prices going uh, up, Uh, 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 very sharply, helped, of course, by the government's ludicrous help-to-buy scheme, which has served not to make houses more affordable for young people, but merely uh, to inflate house prices and ensure that those young people who do buy uh, are overpaying and will be mired in more and more debt going forward. But uh, this uh, and other incentives are the country's ludicrous housing benefit scheme. Don't get me started on that. The list goes on. Have caused house prices to go up In order to deal with that and to deal with quite resilient demand, house builders have had to invest pretty heavily in buying new land for development, building up their land bank. And of course, when there's competition for land, because land is clearly limited in supply uh, due to this country's planning regulations, land which you can really use for building houses is very limited in supply. So when you have a lot of people chasing that, uh, it tends to be that prices of that land go up pretty dramatically. But what happens when uh, the house builders suddenly decide that they don't want to build uh, any more houses, when their profits are crashing at an operational level, and suddenly uh, they're a bit uh, 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 worried about uh, needing a bit of cash? There's bound to be at least one house builder which has overextended itself and which will need cash. So it, at that point, has to start selling land. With any illiquid asset, uh, whether it be actually just a house in a street, a house is a relatively illiquid asset. If you have one forced seller of a house in your street right now with the market pretty soft and they're prepared to accept, you know, 200,000 when the last sale in the house was 250, but they need it. They're having a divorce. It's terrible. He was cheating on her. She was cheating on him. They hate each other with a passion. They're screaming at each other. It's murder. They've got to sell the house. Well, they'll accept 200, even if the last price in the street was 250, just for a quick sale to be rid of each other. And that sets a new benchmark for the street. Uh, It can happen the other way around when people are desperate to get into a desirable street and it's a liquid asset. Illiquid assets move very sharply in both directions. Now, if you think a house in a street is a relatively illiquid asset, uh, a relatively illiquid asset, think about a green field on the edge of a town somewhere in Oxfordshire. That's a truly illiquid asset. Uh, And therefore, when you have just a few four sellers, and there will always be, there are always going to be some house builders, maybe small independents, uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, one of the larger ones who gets into real financial difficulty. They find they've got too much borrowing. The banks are saying, you've got to sell assets. Well, they can't sell houses anymore because no one's buying them. So they end up selling their land and they end up selling it at a big discount. Now, when that starts, All of the house builders have to review the value of their land banks 
and they review them sharply downwards. So it could be that operating profits from their house building, and I'm plucking numbers from the air here, but to demonstrate my point, a house builder could, in a good year, be making 100 million operating profits. The next year, volumes go down, prices go down, operational gearing kicks in, and operating profits fall to 40 or 50 million. But then the company has to review the carrying value of its land bank. And that's where the real red ink comes in. Suddenly, you find that the company is reporting a loss of 250 million. Now, of course, it's a non-cash item, just uh, uh, writing down the carry value of your land bank. The cash went out the window uh, many, many years ago. But doing this uh, is likely to put pressure on your banking covenants, for instance. Suddenly, the banks who've lent you money find that they've got relatively little asset cover. They start getting jittery. Uh, they start demanding, well, dividends out the window for starters. They start demanding that dividends be scrapped. Uh, they start pushing companies into doing rescue rights issues, etc. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to happen tonight, but that is what can happen to house builders. I have seen it before in two cycles in the market. I've been writing about house builders and they suddenly, they, for a while, they look incredibly cheap, but then you realise just how incredibly expensive they were. Just because the stock is on a P4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you might think that's cheap. Uh, that's a historic P, just because it yields 5, 6, 7, 8, 9%. What's that? Crest Nicholson yields yield 9%, which had Andrew Monk uh, uh, salivating uh, uh, his wet dream of a share, the yield almost 10%. That is a historic yield. Those are historic PEs. With house builders, things can change. They are the most cyclical. Maybe banks are more cyclical, but they are amongst the most cyclical of stocks. It really is a case of feast one year and famine the next, which is why they should generally be on fairly moderate PEs. And they should be yielding more than the market norm uh, over the long run. Why? Because there is such low quality of earnings. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're the greatest, most talented house builder in Britain uh, or uh, uh, Kevin McLeod from Ground Designs, whose mini-bond-funded uh, mini uh, house building companies have just gone bust, losing the bondholders nearly all in different not all of their money. It doesn't matter whether you're McLeod or a genius. If the cycle moves against you, you are going to face these problems. I mean, the McLeod thing does make a little point about Land Bank. His companies had some half-finished sites in Oxfordshire. Who is going to rush to take them on? And what price do you think they're going to be taking on? The administrators seem to be moving into his companies. Uh, there's, I suspect, not going to be a rush of people looking to buy half-finished sites, tainted by the fact the company went bust. Someone will buy them, but they will buy them at a discount, and that will then be send, sending uh, signals to everyone else operating in the, in the area and to their auditors about what their carrying value should be for their uh, half-finished or uh, not-yet-started sites. Why do I mention all of this? There is a very interesting article uh, which is in the uh, Times newspaper um, uh, uh, oh, today. 
which gives you the clearest signal about what's going to happen in the housing market. Now, it concerns direct-to-share sales. Direct-to-share sales is a bit of a difficult thing. I was with a CEO and a company founder the other day, and we agreed that the guy can actually never really sell shares in his company. If he does, people will always read bad things into it. I actually think when you float a new business on the stock market, it is very bad form to sell shares uh, 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 within the first couple of years anyway, before you've proved yourself, before you've shown that you can cope uh, as a company uh, founder and in the PLC environment. I think it's poor form uh, to sell within the first couple of years, but actually as a founder, it's very hard to sell at any time uh, without uh, uh, getting some opprobrium. Uh, but people have been selling uh, in the house building sector. Uh, the Times picks up on Tony Pidgeley. He's the chairman of Barclay Group, and he has sold 72.9 million quids worth of shares uh, in two tranches in July and October. He's reduced his holding in the company from uh, by 40% to just 2.1%. Now, Pidgeley, uh, one could say he's 72, you can't take it with you. Why not raise 73 million and spend your last couple of decades uh, maxing out on the coke and hookers? I would, yeah, I, I couldn't blame him in that respect. But one thing is, he sold such a large amount of shares. And to do it this year of all years, uh, and historically, he has been very, someone who is very good at A, running companies, but B, in calling the market. And it's not like he's the only one. Uh, Rob Perrins, uh, who's the CEO of Barclay, uh, he sold a quarter of his stake uh, in the company, 25% of his shares, uh, pocketing 12 million in September. Uh, David Thomas, the uh, chief executive of Barrett Developments, which is the biggest builder of houses in Britain by number of houses, sold more than a third of his shares for 3.3 million in July. And Pete Redfern, the CEO of Taylor Wimpy, sold 2.2 million shares in Taylor Wimpy, two thirds of his holding for 3.7 million. Now, uh, in the case of Perrins, 54, Thomas, 56, and Redfern, 49, the you-can't-take-it-with-you excuse really doesn't wash. It could be that one of them, I give you, is having some sort of messy divorce uh, or has some personal reason for selling shares. But the scale of the share purchases and the fact that you've now got all of these guys doing it uh, does tell you something uh, about what is going through their minds. They know far, far better than you, uh, and far better than you or I, what is going to happen to their industry over the next 12 months. Now, it could be that maybe my uh, uh, assumptions are wrong, that somehow uh, maybe the global asset bubble in house in residential housing, residential real estate, will continue for another year or another two years. It is possible, um, but some stage it's going to come to an end. And it could be uh, uh, that, uh, 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 that, therefore, that these share sales were premature. But 
even if the global asset bubble continues and we don't have a real slowdown in housing volumes, and that will be the thing which causes a write down in the carrying value of land banks. Even if that doesn't happen next year, it is going to happen at some stage. These guys uh, may not be selling right at the top. Uh, they're not total geniuses. Uh, but the cluster of sales, the number of share sales, the volume of share sales, the percentage of the stakes which these guys are selling, to sell two-thirds of your stake in the company you run, that is a very, very, very clear signal. Even selling a quarter of your holding, that again is a material signal. Doing all of that uh, is a clear sign that they think things are going to go wrong. Now, what does that mean for the wider company? Well, firstly, it means, you know, ignore historic P's and yields uh, on, on residential house builders. Ignore them. Uh, these guys are clearly ignoring them. They're ignoring the bumper yields. They get a lot more uh, income if they held on to their money here, their shares in their own companies. The yield on that is far superior to what they'll get putting it in a FTSE tracker or uh, an equity income fund, whether or not managed by Neil Woodford. They are taking the hit on yield for a very real reason. They're trying to preserve their capital. So, uh, in terms of house building shares, just ignore the historics. Those yields may well prove to be illusory. Uh, the PEs may well uh, uh, prove to be unsustainable. And that could see a very, very material uh, uh, reduction in share prices. So you don't buy house building stocks. Clearly, I think you follow the insiders and sell. But it does have implications for the rest of the economy. If we, if we do find ourselves in a position where housing volumes are falling and house prices are falling, that will have a real effect on consumer psychology. It's even more scary than the idea of Jeremy Corbyn getting into number 10, which I think, by the way, is exceedingly unlikely. It's the idea that you walk past the window of your local estate agent, you look in there and you say, jeepers, that house uh, which is rather similar to mine, uh, was on the market for uh, uh, 400000 uh, I'm not saying the house I live in is worth 400000 Welsh Hovel is worth whatever it is. The house, so I'm plucking the, 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 um, uh, the number out of the head, but that house, it was on for 400000 It's now on for three seventy five, or it's now on for three fifty. dollars um, But I paid four fifty a couple of years ago. That psychology, people going past the state agent, and we all do it. If people feel uh, that their uh, uh, houses are falling in value, they feel much poorer. You know, you can forget about the fact that you owe the bank and you owe your credit cards and you owe various other people 10, 15, 20 grand in unsecured loans. Uh, you can sort of try and put that at the back of your head if you think, hang on a second, my house is worth 450 grand and I've only got a 300 grand mortgage on it. You can put those sort of things aside. Suddenly, if you find that your house is worth 325 grand and you've got a 300 grand mortgage on it, uh, and the house, the value of the house is falling, you think, oh no, you know, I could be in a position where actually I have less equity in my house than I have on my credit card debts. Or hell's teeth, I could even find myself in a negative equity position. All of those things will have a clear impact on consumer behavior.
Uh, if you feel poorer, if you start worrying about your personal balance sheet, you will eat out less. You will spend less in the stores and online. Uh, you will cut back on your holidays. You will cut back on your discretionary spending. Well, maybe you won't. Maybe you're uh, uh, sufficiently uh, 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 wealthy. You won't. But people will. It will impact on consumer behavior. And uh, that would be yet another reason why you wouldn't want to own shares in any retailers, uh, any tour operators. Thanks to Thomas Cook, your choice in that is somewhat limited now. Uh, you wouldn't want to own shares in retailers, and you wouldn't want to own shares in companies which are exposed to retailers, like Into. Uh, we, we finish where we started. I hope you've enjoyed this first part of Share Profits Radio. There is more to come. Uh, uh, I should, at this stage, uh, uh, thank uh, Open Orphan PLC, which once again is sponsoring uh, this show. It's free for a reason, that is, that Open Orphan pays to sponsor it, uh, as have other companies in the past. I'm happy to take sponsorship from this AIM-listed company because, A, I trust its boss, Cathal Friel, which I've known for a long time. I am a shareholder. I am well in profit on this particular stock. Uh, I haven't looked at the share price for a couple of weeks. 6p? 6.5p? Something like that. Uh, I believe that they will go much higher. I believe that they will get into double figures, uh, at which point I think I might be tempted uh, to put something in the bank, but that is my target. Uh, if you want to know more about Open Orphan, I would urge you to follow it on Twitter, at Open Orphan. And if you want to find out why this is such an interesting company, uh, listen to Share Profits Radio Edition 8, where I do a long interview with Cathal. I will probably try and do another one just before Christmas. Uh, so thank you to Open Orphan PLC for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, and then I'll be back with the second part of the show. Hi, it's Tom Winifred. Welcome back to the second part of this, the 19th edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, uh, earlier, which will appear sometime next week on Share Profits, uh, about the what I consider to be the three most obviously over-promoted and overvalued stocks on the AIM casino. Uh, they are uh, in no particular order, and I suspect this will come as no great surprise to you. Uh, Vasarian, uh, which is looking to revolutionize and dominate the world of graphene, and which at 94p is capitalized at £144 million. Uh, Bidstack, uh, which is looking to revolutionize the world of video games by putting in disruptive ads into them. Uh, and at 22.5p, it's capitalized at £54 million. Uh, and AFC Energy, uh, which is looking to disrupt the world of hydrogen green energy shit, uh, at, which at 19.5p is capitalised at 87 million quid. All three of those are tapping into what is perceived as to be the new hot sectors. Uh, the word disruptive can be used a lot uh, uh, to uh, describe what they do. History suggests that this is not a guaranteed way to wealth, 
I'm perfectly prepared to concede that the world of video games can be disrupted by putting new ads in. And that this is potentially a huge market, and indeed there may be a huge demand and huge growth in the world graphene market, uh, and possibly uh, 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 there will be huge growth uh, in green energy. Almost certainly there will be huge growth in the green energy market. I'm prepared to accept all of that. Just like I would have been prepared to accept in the 1920s that there would be huge growth in radio stocks. Uh, and in the same decade that there would be huge growth in airline stocks. Uh, maybe more in the 1950s, there would be huge growth in airline stocks. Uh, in, in well, Certainly in demand for airlines and the use of airlines. I think uh, it's not too controversial to say that around the end of the 1990s, the world was going to be changed by uh, the dot-com revolution. All of those are uh, incontrovertible statements. Uh, but what were the odds of you making money from buying an individual radio stock, airline stock, uh, or a dot-com stock? Uh, when people really started getting excited about it and said, yes, this is the new great hot sector, uh, you will not be surprised to know that the vast majority of dot-com stocks, which were listed in 1998, 1999, and 2000, the vast majority, 95% plus, went bust. Uh, most of those which didn't go bust had to change their models uh, uh, they became cash shells and they became something else. A very few survived, and some of them have made an awful lot of money. That, the, that, that chap who runs Amazon, he's done frightfully well for himself. Uh, that, 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 that fellow who runs Facebook, he, he's worth a quid or two. Some have done spectacularly. Most of those who've survived uh, have delivered profit, uh, uh, have prof are now profitable. But are their shares back at the levels they were when they were at peak hype back in 1999? No, they're not. Uh, equally, you can look at the radio stocks or the airline stocks of the 50s, the radio stocks of the 20s. The vast majority, nearly all of them, went bust. Uh, quite a lot of them never actually got to the stage of making a radio program or making an airline. They were just floated because promoters wanted to offer shares in something that was hot, that was disruptive, that was going to change the world uh, to greedy investors. Of those that did survive, uh, some made uh, uh, some had to change their business models. They became cash shells. They moved on to other things. Others went on to be successful airlines uh, or uh, 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 radio companies. Uh, but their returns were nothing like uh, uh, people expected at the peak of mania, the peak bubble. There. When people, when a sector is hot, people extrapolate out. They assume that margins will stay where they are, even though there are more and more people entering in the sector, entering the sector, uh, drawn in by this investor enthusiasm, which is bound to crush margins. They extrapolate so that everybody would be using a radio set for twenty-four hours a day, and therefore you could uh, 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 sell advertising uh, on that basis. Everyone will be flying, just flying to the local shopping centre flying everywhere. Uh, they extrapolate on that basis. And of course, it doesn't happen. So even those companies that did manage to survive and stay and become profitable entities never made the returns investors predicted at the start. 
and many of them proved to be pretty poor investments going forward. That should be a salutary lesson uh, to those who think that because they are invested in what is deemed to be the next big thing, they are bound to make money. The reality is that, yes, I'm sure the green energy market will be enormous. Personally, I'm a global warming skeptic. Uh, it runs in the family. Uh, uh, people will know the, the works of my late uncle, Christopher Booker. Uh, I don't believe in man-made uh, climate uh, change, but uh, I guess I'm in a minority. And therefore, there is huge uh, political and fiscal pressure on companies to engage in the green energy revolution. But what are the odds on a relatively small, and in case of AFC Energy, don't look at its market cap, which we'll come to in a second, uh, just look at its balance sheet. The company has just managed to raise a pitiful 520,000 quid. It's been going for many, many years. Net tangible assets uh, will, I suspect, be in the region of two or three million quid. Strike out the goodwill, etc., etc., uh, and intangible assets. You're going to have net assets of a couple of million quid. What are the chances of a company with that sort of financial muscle behind it, uh, uh, with that sort of asset base, being able to make a huge inroad in a global market? I put it to you very, very low. Uh, ditto bid stack. It probably has got tangible assets at the moment of in the region of 4 million, 3 million. Depends how rapidly it's burning through the cash, which incidentally, I suspect, is a lot faster than most folks think. As for Vasarian, pretty similar to Bidstack. Uh, one of the three things that links all three of these companies uh, is, in my view, a prediction that all three will, by the end of June 2020, have had to raise more external finance uh, in order to avoid going into administration. As such, their shares uh, are clearly overvalued uh, 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 because they do not discount that financing risk, nor do they discount the huge operational risk. Will this company actually gain traction uh, in such a large market when it will be up against much bigger, when they'll be up against much bigger players? Uh, there are further risks. If you look at the revenues from these businesses as they stand, Bidstack was 26000 in the first half of this year. Uh, Vasarian from its core graphene business, again, a few hundred thousand quid. Ludicrous. This is revenue, not profit. The companies are hugely loss-making. AFC Energy, zero. Uh, there is no historic data uh, at all in all these cases. No, it could be that they succeed, that they go on to dominate their industries. Odds are against it, but the current market caps all discount a fair degree of success uh, when that can't be guaranteed. The odd one out in those three, as far as I know, is AFC Energy. Uh, the other companies uh, appear to have misled investors, which may explain why the share prices are where they are now. Uh, Vasarian, for instance, announced the grand launch of its US hub, a sales and R&D center. Well, it appears to be an unmanned office. That seems to me a little bit uh, uh, naughty uh, to have made that announcement. Uh, Vasarian also was meant to have uh, uh, received investment from a Chinese company. Uh, that was announced in March. The shares spiked. They had signed an MOU. Uh, the CEO dumped a whole load of shares. Here we are six or seven months later. Still no news on that. 
As for Bidstack, well, it's lied to investors about what its first half results would be. Uh, it's sitting on a lack of profits and almost certainly a lack of sales warning. Uh, and of course, its directors have been dumping shares too. For a time, you can sustain this. Uh, I compare all three with Sirius Minerals. It was also somewhat aggressive in the way that it promoted its share price in earlier years, announcing offtake deals with Chinese companies, which sounded incredibly impressive and pushed the shares up, allowing it to get away placings only for those companies to be exposed as just houses of cards. One was wound up after it was unable to pay a debt of just $30,000. Uh, but Sirius was able to maintain the illusion because it was going to disrupt the world. It had a transform transformative business asset, uh, a mine in the North Yorkshire Moors. No one really understood why it was transformative, but the company said it was, and it was able to maintain that illusion. Eventually, of course, it was unable to fund that illusion, and that is why the shares have collapsed. But uh, the point of this story is uh, companies can sustain these illusions for an awfully long time. It is terribly dangerous to short uh, shares like Vasarian, uh, Big Bidstack, and AFC Energy. I think it's more dangerous to be long because you can wake up overnight uh, with an admission that all the money's gone and the company can't refinance, uh, and you can lose uh, uh, 60, 70, 80% of your money in the space of a few days. So it's hugely dangerous being long, but it's also dangerous being short. Uh, when the stock is being aggressively promoted and has a willing army of disciples prepared to believe almost anything the company says, and it is they who are setting the marginal share price since there's no institutional involvement in the stock and therefore no borrow, very difficult to be short. In that situation, the shares, if they're already at a valuation which is insane, and I would say the valuations of Vasarian, Bidstack uh, and AFC Energy are, with respect, uh, utterly insane, insane and utterly insane, if you're at that level, there's nothing to stop the valuations being doubly utterly insane. It is a very dangerous short. Uh, uh, in the end, the bears will be vindicated in all three cases, or the shares in all three of these companies will gravitate towards zero. I'm not saying they'll reach zero, but they'll go in that direction. It's a matter of when the end comes and how they get there. They could go higher before they collapse, but collapse they will. Uh, identifying companies which are telling lies and calling them out for telling lies, companies that engage in fraud or companies that are merely overvalued is what we do on Share Profits every day of the week. If you're enjoying Share Profits Radio, but don't subscribe to Share Profits, I've got one word to say to you. Cheapskate. It only costs $5.99 a month to get access to Share Profits, which will bring you about 300 articles uh, a month, including a daily podcast from myself, The Bearcast, where I will look at individual companies uh, and provide a detailed analysis, exposing lies quite often, uh, but also dealing uh, uh, with issues uh, of fraud or just simply overvaluation. One of the ones I did last week was on a company called CloudCore, a company obsessed with sales, uh, but very poor when it comes to making profits. I don't see that it ever will make a profit. Uh, it is a company which has been listed for six or seven years. Its market cap is 37 million, but get this, its retained losses 
are 68 million quid. That's 68 million quid of other people's money, which has gone to fund a company only worth 38 million quid today. Madness, madness. Uh, uh, what we do on share profits is call those sort of situations out on a daily basis. So if you want to stop being a cheapskate, why not sign up to the full share profits service? Uh, it costs just five ninety nine a month, and I bet you you'll enjoy it, and it'll probably save you money. One of the articles I ran on share profits this week, and I will put up a link to it, uh, 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 was about something which is, to me, quite obviously a scam. Uh, the company in question is called Appbox Media. Now, it's not listed, uh, but I suspect that many of you listening will have received calls uh, uh, over the years uh, from salesmen trying to persuade you to invest in Appbox Media uh, or possibly in its sister company, One True View, or possibly in a company called Cannibal Life, uh, which is involved, which was launched last year, and uh, which is involved in, uh, you will not surprise you, the medicinal cannabis market. The common feature uh, between all three of them is that they are run by a Mr. Polat Hassan. Investors in Appbox Media were promised absolutely anything in order to invest. They all received cold calls. Now, I don't know how uh, uh, people got onto these lists, uh, but suffice to say, people who uh, run boiler rooms will get details from more or less anywhere. I know this GPD on our uh, business was meant to sort of avoid us getting spammed with junk email uh, and contacted by people out of the blue. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have worked. Uh, those of us who are law-abiding citizens wouldn't dream of breaching GPDR uh, uh, rules. Uh, we'd be terrified of the fines, so we play by the law. Uh, but those who are shysters don't give a flying what's it about the law, and so they plague us anyway and give us calls. Uh, suffice to say, if you receive a call, uh, out of the blue or on some tenuous basis inviting you to invest in something, uh, it is almost certain that you shouldn't be investing in it. Now, I know there are people like Jim Mellon and Nigel Ray who listen to these podcasts. Jim and Nigel, you're a bit different. You might receive the odd phone call from someone who is kosher. I suspect you're also played with a bunch of jokers, but you might receive the odd phone call from someone who is kosher, like the head of sales at Numis or something inviting you to invest in uh, something which has some credibility. But for the rest of us, for mere mortals, if we are receiving phone calls, if you receive a phone call from anyone inviting you to invest in an exciting opportunity, well, you know that they're bottom feeding because we are the bottom rung. Uh, we are the lowest of the low. If it was a really exciting investment opportunity, it would have gone to institutional investors or it would have been snapped up by someone like Jim Mellon or Nigel Ray in a personal capacity. Or it would have gone to uh, established high net worth investors. If someone's coming to you and me asking for money, you know they're desperate. And that should tell you uh, that the investment proposition is almost certain to be an absolutely appalling one. Nonetheless, the sort of folks who sell this sort of shit are heavily incentivized. They're paid a very large commission uh, for getting in money. And that seems to have been the situation with Appbox Media. 
uh, they told whatever was needed uh, in order to get the money in. Uh, clients were invited to the very impressive city offices of Outbox Media, a company which is meant to be developing video games or, or uh, uh, computer games, apps. Uh, why on earth would you have expensive city offices, hugely expensive city offices? Look at the lease commitments in the company's annual report. Why on earth would you do that if you're inventing games? You need to be in a grungy shed somewhere in Newham. You developers don't care. As long as you give them pizza and a bit of porn to watch, they'll be fine being in a shed in Newham. A bit more porn, you'll be fine. They don't care. They don't need to be in smart city offices. That should have been enormous red flag. The salesman would then take clients out to lunch at expensive restaurants and tell them things which were patently not true. Part of being a salesman is uh, always tell your client why they have to invest now. Uh, and clients, uh, people who are tapped up to invest in Appbox Media, were told things like, we're just closing a funding round. We're closing it next week. Well, you know, why should I invest in this one? Why can't I wait for another one? Well, because the next one's reserved for Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, and it's going to be at a much higher price. Right. It's your last chance to get in before Mark at the lower price. Some people fell for that. You and I know that's patent nonsense. If you had Zuckerberg on the line, would he honestly agree to pay a higher price than some, some punter who'd just been called on the phone? It is ludicrous. Zuckerberg is the sort of man like Jim Mellon or Nigel Ray who can demand that if you get him on the shareholder register, he comes in at a much lower price than anybody else. It was patently untrue, and needless to say, Zuckerberg has not appeared on the shareholder register, but the shareholder register is pages and pages and pages long of people uh, uh, who were getting in. There were no funding rounds. It was a constant process of getting money in. If you read the article uh, on the website, you will see there were numerous other red flags. Uh, Appbox Media and One True View, its sister company, are uh, always almost going to get struck off for failing to file accounts on time. In the end, they do file the accounts, but the accounts are complete and utter jokes. I looked at, in detail at the last accounts filed by Appbox Media. Appbox Media, uh, this is uh, uh, accounts which were filed in 2018 for the year to, in September 2018, for the year to July and July 2017. Hugely late, hugely late accounts. That is always a red flag. At that point, the company was promising an IPO in 2019. Well, of course, that hasn't happened. Uh, I've seen some of the, the emails sent by salesmen, some of the marketing literature. They were even mentioning that they were looking, they were appointing advisors. But suddenly, the IPO hasn't happened. Well, I can't think why a company that uh, is almost struck off, that still hasn't filed its accounts for the end to the end of July 2018, uh, despite changing the year end by a day, which gives itself an extra three months, an obvious sign of a shyster, uh, uh, to file its accounts, is still now overdue, and somehow it hasn't got the IPO away. Well, that's a surprise. So the company's come up with a new excuse, which is that it's going to be taken over in a trade sale, valuing the business at £150 million so everyone will make money. 
Unfortunately, it comes up with a cock and bull excuse as to why nobody will get their money for three years. Uh, there's also a cock and bull excuse uh, demand that people sign a confidentiality agreement so that people like me can't expose these people for the scammers that they are. The 2018 uh, 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 annual report is instructive. The company boasts about how sales went up from £26, yes, that's £26 in 2017, uh, to just over a million pounds in 2018. Uh, but then you see that actually a million of pounds worth of those sales came from a sister company, almost certainly One True View PLC, and that it hadn't paid for most of them because One True View PLC, yet to file any accounts, massively overdue, uh, almost certainly has no income uh, other than the money it's raising from investors. Uh, tapping them up for shares. The whole thing stinks. It so obviously stinks. And of course, it is naive investors who've been targeted. I'm pretty certain that uh, some investors have invested in Appbox Media, also in One True View, and may well have invested in Cannibal Life too. Uh, I am aware of one investor who has been tapped up for all three. It is quite shocking. The red flags are everywhere. I have passed uh, this on to the FCA to have a look at, and I hope that they do have a look at it, because it appears to be an ongoing operation. The company is no longer raising money for Outbox Media, but it is raising uh, uh, large sums for other companies in the stable. Uh, so far, I suspect that the amount of money raised from investors uh, to keep this boiler room in operation, is in excess of £15 million. That's an awful lot of money. It's an awful lot of investors who are going to lose everything. Uh, and it's an awful lot of investors who are not necessarily that financially sophisticated. They are exactly the sort of people who the uh, regulators, who the authorities should be investigating. Will they be investigated? Will they be protected? Will the authorities take action? Judging by past experience, I wouldn't hold your breath. I shall keep uh, uh, people updated on how this goes and if we get any response from the FCA uh, uh, via share profits. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards. As I say, the next edition will come to you uh, from Greece, from halfway up a mountain, uh, with snow on the tops of the mountain behind me as I undertake uh, the annual olive harvest. Uh, that will be next week. Uh, if you can't wait to next week to hear uh, more of my thoughts, you can always uh, sign up to Share Profits. Just $5.99 a month. Uh, and uh, uh, that $5.99 a month gives you access to 300 articles a month. Our entire archive of articles, which is now, I think, well over 10,000 articles, uh, podcasts, videos, a daily bearcast from me where I expose frauds, liars, charlatans, and promoters uh, on the AIM market and also on the standard list of the main market uh, and so much more. Uh, if you're a cheapskate, I'll speak to you from Greece in a week's time. Uh, if you are serious about investing uh, and you want to support the best financial journalism going, the best investigative financial journalism going, sign up to Share Profits now. Thank you for listening. <laughs>